Church, would you just bow your heads for just another moment? This morning, we're going to spend just a little bit of time talking about how how a marriage relationship can find healing. And I recognize today that in this room, there are some who are maybe barely hanging on. There are some in the room who have been walking through some brokenness for a period of time and you just feel stuck and you feel like there's no way that this is ever going to improve. And the truth is there may be a couple or two in the room and and you may be um, having to deal with the the biggest, most difficult um, challenge in your relationship to date. And so here's my prayer. My prayer is that, 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 that Scripture would speak into the brokenness, the hurt, the wound, so that you might find the healing that's available for us in Jesus. Just look up here at me. We're going to have a conversation. I want to visit with you this morning about how to restore a marriage. If you have been married longer than about 12 minutes, you have probably dealt with controversy or difficulty. If you just got back from your honeymoon, this message will be mildly depressing. But the truth is, every marriage goes through conflict. Every marriage goes through a period of time when things do not work the way that you thought that they should, the way that you hoped that they would. And in those moments, you need something foundationally that holds you to the relationship, that draws you back to one another. And what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to walk through a passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4 to help us all understand what it looks like to take the necessary steps to rebuild. If you're a guest here today or if you're watching online at solacechurch.com and this is new to you this morning, we're in a series called Rules of Engagement and we're learning how to do marriage correctly. We're learning what it looks like even last week when someone has the desire to step outside the relationship. We're talking about what it looks like this week to restore. Next week we're going to talk about what it looks like to do marriage till death. God's plan and purpose. Covenant relationship that lasts till death. But this week, let's talk about how to repair, how to restore. I want to say this up front because it's not specifically in the verses that we're going to read, but it's true certainly in the larger context of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. But even more broadly than that, in the context of what it means to live out a relationship with God. Hear me. I'm convinced of this as a pastor who has sat in counseling sessions and coaching sessions Dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of times now. When a couple goes through difficulty, the number one deciding factor, as I've seen it, that determines if they will repair the relationship or have the relationship restored, is if they are or are not submitted to Christ. Couples who come in for counseling, couples who go through a period of difficulty, those couples are, are, are tempted to not just drift away from one another, 
but to drift away and sometimes run away from their relationship with God. And couples who are willing to submit themselves first to Christ are those couples who find the opportunity for healing in their relationship. Is it possible for a marriage to survive without, without a relationship with Christ? Yes, the answer is yes. But in my experience as a pastor, I have seen couples who, when they have been willing to submit their agenda to God, their brokenness to God, God has a way through that process of restoring their relationship. So I would suggest to you today that if you're here this morning and your relationship is struggling, that the, that the best thing you can do before you leave this room is to make sure that you are in a place where you can hear from God, where his spirit can speak to you, you will listen and respond to what he has to say. The second thing that I would say before we look at the text is, next to my relationship with God being in the right place so that I can work on the relationship, the second most important thing I want to give to you comes from an illustration from the card game Texas Hold'em. I know, I know, I know you thought there's no way our pastor would ever use a poker game as an illustration for something to do with my life, and you were wrong. I don't know if you've played the game Texas Hold'em. It is actually one of my favorite card games to play. I, I do not gamble. I just want to make that clear. And I'm not being paid for advertising for Texas Hold'em, okay? No contract deals for me up here. I don't gamble. Maybe three times in my life I've placed a bet on something. But, but I love to play the game, the card games. It's a great game. If you're unfamiliar with the game, basically you're dealt two cards. You have a stack of chips available and based on those two cards, you engage in betting. You're, you're dealt the cards, there's a round of betting. There's three more cards laid down, a round of betting. Another card, a round of betting. And another card, and a round of betting. And then finally, at some point, the hands are revealed. Whoever has the best hand wins all the chips that have been bet. And one of the things I love about the game of Texas Hold'em is this whole idea of no limits. Texas Hold'em. It's when you can, at any point, push all of your chips in, go all in, hold no chips back, on a certain hand. Now, it's true that in Texas Hold'em you can bluff. But if you've ever played the game, you know this. That once you discover that you have the hand that you don't believe can be beat, you're willing to push all your chips in to play that hand for that moment. But in the game of Texas Hold'em, if for some reason you believe that you may get a better hand at some point in the future, you're going to hold your chips back. Quite honestly, you may even fold on that hand. And I would say to you that that, il- that picture in Texas Hold'em illustrates perfectly what happens oftentimes in marriage relationships. When, di- when, when couples go through difficult periods of their, of their relationship, it's often true that they begin to look at the hand that they're dealt, that marriage, and they begin to wonder, is there another hand for me? Is there a better hand coming along at some point in the future? And if they buy into the belief that, that they just married the wrong person or this just will never work, then, then they'll hold back investing in the relationship. So much so that the relationship cannot experience healing and restoration. So one of the questions I always ask couples is, I'm sure it's very weird that their pastor gives them this illustration before I talk to them much about restoration. But I always sit down with couples and I say to them, listen, the next time you come in to meet with me, and I give them this illustration, I say to them, if you're not willing to go all in on this hand, we're wasting our time. Until you're ready to push all in on this relationship, relationship healing will never come. And I don't know where you are today. Maybe some of you are here and you're looking at the hand that you're dealt with and you're like, man, I may have made a mistake or maybe there's a better one coming along. I would say to you that my prayer today is that you, that you would look at the marriage relationship that you are in, this hand that you have, this covenant that you've made, and you say, I'm all in, whatever it 
takes. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4. And to be fair, the specific context of Ephesians chapter 4 is dealing with the church. How the church should conduct itself in, in terms of relationships inside the church. But I would suggest to you that the, that, the, that the scripture itself applies to marriage. And I think one of the reasons why it can't apply to marriage is because the church is much like a marriage relationship. Uh, we are called the bride of Christ for a reason. And, and we're called the bride of Christ because we engage with our groom in a certain way. And we're called to engage with our, to our groom in a certain way, Jesus himself. In a similar way... A marriage relationship is about a, a, a bride and a groom engaging with one another. And so I think the scripture applies today, even though the original context was about the church itself. In Ephesians 4, Paul gives a, kind of a, a, a picture here of how the church should be operating. And I'm not going to talk to you today about that, maybe some other time. But just before the text, verse number 25, that we're going to read, just before Paul Paul begins to unpack how we can restore our relationships. Paul talks about this new life that we have in Christ and that we don't do things the way Gentiles do. Now, Gentiles here is a picture of those outside of Christ. We don't operate like they do. They give in easily to passions and to lust and pursuits and desires that the Christ follower shouldn't have to give in to, shouldn't give in to. The Christ follower has a different, a, a different pattern of life as we've talked about before. And so... Just, just after those verses, this is what Paul says. Now, I want to give to you very practically what it looks like to walk through restoration. Notice in verse 25. Here's how he begins the text. Therefore, you guys know this. When there's therefore, we find out what it's there for. And I've just given you the therefore. Paul says this is how we are to act in Christ. We have a new life. We don't act as Gentiles. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. And speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. I love that Paul starts with, uh, starts with this passage of scripture. And I've studied this in depth. And I've read the Greek words here. And here's what it means. You ready? It means stop lying. That's brilliant, isn't it? You're glad that I did my homework this week to learn that. You're like, wow, that's amazing. No, it literally means that, that inside the context of relationships, that deceit, manipulation, and lying is the death blow to the relationship. That there's no way that a relationship that must have trust at its core can exist if there is a constant state of manipulation and lying and deceit. It can't exist. And I would say to you as your pastor... And I would say to you as someone who, who, who is in a marriage and who has observed many, many marriages up close and personal, that this, is a, this plagues so many relationships. Remember, our original design was naked and unafraid or unashamed. Without secrets, vulnerable with one another. But oftentimes, when the relationship begins to break down, people begin to become secretive. And sometimes, even before the relationship breaks down, someone, for whatever reason, buys into the idea that I can deceive or I can lie or I can manipulate my way into health, and it's just not true. And my guess is that there are some relationships right now that there's some brokenness going on in your home, in your family, because one or both of you are operating in this pattern of lying. 
I want you to understand something that's really important about the marriage relationship. Marriage relationships in terms of trust must have margin and credibility. Margin and credibility is the idea that I can take you at your word. When you tell me something, I can believe it. Oftentimes, when margin or credibility is gone, what happens is, is when one spouse talks about something that's going on or something they did or a place they're going or a conversation they're having on the phone or a text message they're sending, if tr- trust or uh, margin and credibility is not there, in the back of the other spouse's mind, they're saying, yeah, right. Yeah, I know that's what you're saying, but I've seen you over the course of time and, it's, and, and you haven't shown me that that's how you're acting. And so credibility suffers. And let me tell you what happens if there is falsehood with, when we're constantly living in this state of deceit. What happens is, is intimacy moves from deep level conversations to transactional level conversations where gut level conversations and sharing life turns to, hey, how was your day? Go get the kids. It bankrupts the intimacy in the relationship. So Paul begins, therefore, in view of this new relationship with Christ, speak truthfully with one another. And I would just encourage you today, just to know this, relationships are not going to be restored until you can sit down with one another, look at each other in the eye, and say, this is the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is who I am. This is how I feel. This is what I'm experiencing. This is, this is my struggle. This is my difficulty. Speaking truthfully to one another. So Paul establishes here the beginning. It must be built on honesty. If relationships are going to be restored, honesty must be a part of the equation. But he goes on in the text in verse number, uh, uh, verse number 26 to say this. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. He moves on the, he moves on the story. It must be built on honesty. But one of the great problems I've seen that plagues many, many relationships is this idea of controlling anger. Now, I want to grant this one, one statement, theological statement to you. Hear me. It's okay to be angry. There is something called a righteous anger. The idea of being upset or angry or offended when someone sins against God, that's righteous anger. Or when someone sins against or offends an innocent person, that's also a righteous anger. But, but, but that's not what Paul's dealing with here. Paul's saying that that anger is okay. The anger Paul's concerned about is the anger that wells up within us in the offense that leads us to do things that are contrary to Christ. An anger that moves us into saying things and doing things that adds offense on top of offense. And so Paul says, in your anger, do not sin and don't let your son go down on, the, on your anger. I read this verse many, many years ago, and I took this to heart at the very beginning of my relationship with, with my wife, Jennifer. We've been together 18 years, 15 almost uh, this summer. Uh, we will have been married. That is a feat in and of itself. She put up with me that long. And Jennifer and I have tried to model this verse. There have been many, many times in the past 15 years that Jennifer and I were offended by one another, by something I said, something she said, something I did, she did, something she didn't do that I wanted her to, and vice versa. And in those moments, we've had to make some very difficult decisions. How are we going to respond to one another in those situations? We're offended, we're angry, but then what? I love Paul's verbiage here. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. We, we, we took that literally. So there have been many, many nights that we've stayed up till 1, 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning having discussions about the offense, about the problem, so that we did not go to bed angry. 
And the reason why, and I didn't understand this at first, but I certainly have seen this true over time. The reason why Paul says don't go to bed angry is because when you go to bed angry, you actually give Satan an inroad into your marriage relationship. You see, when you go to bed angry, I don't know the physics or chemistry or science behind this, but when you go to bed angry, spiritually speaking, that anger has time to develop some roots within your soul and in your heart. And you begin to to, to develop the roots of bitterness and resentment and callousness and hardness when you go to bed angry and do not work through your issues. And the truth is, is there are some people in the room right now that you are operating with an offended spirit, an offended heart. You're operating with bitterness and callousness in your relationship because you have not done the process of of working through the issue face-to-face in honesty with your spouse. You're operating with anger. And so everything you do is a response that's, 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 that's rooted in this idea of anger. Satan, the devil, has a foothold into these relationships. You know, it's very interesting. When you think about angry anger and you think about not going to bed angry, it's really challenging, isn't it? I learned something about myself. I didn't know this about myself until my wife revealed it to me. That's how it works, isn't it? I mean, your wife is a wonderful springboard to help you understand all the blind spots in your life. Husbands, wives, you get that. And my wife helped me understand something about myself I didn't know was true. I thought that I was the person that when I was offended that I went quickly and dealt with the offense. But the opposite is actually true. My wife, if she's offended, she'll carry it a little bit and then she'll have the conversation and then she'll move on quickly from it. She's quick to forgive. I carry the offense around for a while. I didn't know this, but I, am, I may be the girl in our relationship. I hold the grudge. I didn't realize this about myself, but I carry that with me. There's been many, many times that I have given my wife the silent treatment for hours and sometimes, confession, sometimes days because she's offended me. Inevitably, hear me, inevitably, when we go to bed at night and I'm angry or upset, inevitably I will turn away from her and face opposite from her. I want her to know I don't want to look at you. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to discuss anything with you. I don't want to be seen by you or see you. I will look away. Without fail, the Holy Spirit will begin to speak to my heart. and He will say, turn over and talk to your wife. And I will say, no. I'm not doing it. She offended me, she hurt me, she said something, she didn't say something, and I don't like it, and I don't like her right now, and I'm not talking to her. Anybody else in the room? And inevitably, the Holy Spirit will say, I know that. Roll over and talk to her. And being the good Christian pastor that I am, I will again resist. But I have found that as painful as it is to roll over and talk, the healing that comes is worth letting go of the anger to resolve. And so I don't want Satan to have a foothold in a my marriage relationship. I don't want him to have an inroad, a welcomed invitation to come wreak all the havoc that Satan can do in my relationship. Because here's what Satan is good at. Satan is good at helping you remember Everything that your spouse has ever done against you. Satan is really good at intensifying, the, exponentially intensifying the, the, the magnitude of the, of, of the offense in your eyes. So don't give him a chance into your relationship. 
Paul goes on to say, it's speak truthfully. It's not, not carrying the weight of anger, operating in the offended spirit. It's letting that stuff go. Having the conversations necessary. He goes on to say in verse number 28, and by the way, I almost left this verse out because it didn't make sense. I didn't think at first to the marriage relationship. So let's look at it. He who has been stealing must steal no longer. <laughs> All right, the, the easy application is, is if you're stealing stuff, stop. It's the easy application. But must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Again, I almost skipped it. I thought the original context, Paul understood this, that, 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 that in and out of Ephesus there were, these, there, were, there were roads, Roman roads, and these pathways were, were, were uh, oftentimes in areas where there would be cliffs or rocks or caves where people could hide. And, and, and in the first century, there were professional thieves People that hid out in these areas and they would just wait on the next victim to come by. They would beat them up. They would take everything. They would send them on their way and they would loot them. And so this was the process that happened day in and day out. And Paul says, these are professional thieves. This is how they live their lives. Ephesus, church at Ephesus, don't be that kind of person. But what I begin to understand about the text, it was so important. Hear me. Paul understands this, that a life of a thief is entirely selfish. It is self-consumed. It is, I want what you have, and it's all for me and for mine. I don't care how it affects you. I don't care how it hurts you. It's just about making sure I have what I need. And I'm going to tell you something. As a pastor, I've seen this very thing plague many, many relationships as well. Honesty is a problem. Anger is a problem. And selfishness is a problem. It's the give me mentality. I'm willing to rob health out of the relationship so that I can have whatever I want. I've seen this with guys and girls in their careers. All they do is spend all their time and energy and effort focused on themselves. Their wife or their husband just along for the ride to support them on their journey to wherever they want to go and their kids are you know they're just good kind of trophies there for everyone to look at the family and say isn't this a great family as I go build my career robbing the marriage relationship of health wives certainly do this as well in many other ways and one of the things I've seen is very interesting about the relationship oftentimes when there's an offense that happens in the relationship one or both of the spouses turn very inward and selfish and here's the way here's what they say if you're not going to give me what I need I'll get what I need for myself So if a husband's rejected in the bedroom or rejected with a compliment or respect, he'll go find that somewhere else. And it's oftentimes true that if a man's rejected in any of those ways, that he'll go on TV or he'll go on the Internet or he'll go out in society and he'll find whatever he's looking for. And he justifies it because he believes uh, he didn't get it at at home. And so therefore he's going to get it somewhere in society or in community. And wives do this as well. Husband doesn't meet that emotional need, that stability need, that provision need, uh, that, rela- that communication need. And so she goes searching for it elsewhere uh, as well. She goes in every place that she can, online or, or in the community or whatever it looks like. And she's searching for that because my husband's not giving it to me. So therefore, I'm going to get what I need for myself. It's a death blow to the relationship. Instead of robbing from the relationship, Paul says, let's be productive. Let's do things that add value to the relationship. This is a picture of sacrifice and giving, even in the offense I'm going to give away. Verse number 28 says, he who steals should steal no longer. So, honesty, anger, selfishness, things that rob the relationship of health that it needs to be restored. He goes on to say in the text, in verse number 29, I love the text here. Because Paul's going to spend the rest of the conversation about uh, the rest of the text about conversation and communication. He goes on to say in verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. <laughs> Anyone in the room give their permission to say stuff they wouldn't normally say when they're offended? Here's my guess. 
One of the two in the marriage relationship has a very good memory. And when they are, when they are offended, they can recall, it's total recall, they can recall everything that their spouse has ever done to them. I see you elbowing and pointing. So when they're offended, they feel the need to make sure that they list out every single time you've ever done that wrong thing to me. And by the way, I'd never told you about that offense, so I'm going to bring that up as well at this moment. They just unload on them. It's oftentimes true that in some some relationships, and by the way, hear me, this is Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus. Unwholesome talk coming out of mouths. Truth is that there are some, some of us in the room that we say things to our spouse that we would get fired for saying in our office. We talk so negatively. Some of us have a cussing problem. Some of us use such filthy language in the home. Have you ever wondered why we give ourselves permission to do that kind of stuff to our spouse? You don't do that to anyone else on the planet. Why are we doing it to our spouses? Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouth, but only what is helpful for building up. James says this in his epistle, that with the same mouth comes praising and cursing, and it should not be only that which is helpful. And and, and you would say this, Matt, you don't understand what goes on in our house. You don't know how they talk or how they speak or how angry they make me. No one can push the buttons like my spouse can push my buttons. But do you know that Paul in this text assumes that we are going to be offended? That's why he writes all this. He assumes the offense before the offense has ever happened. He's writing to us on how to respond to the offense. No unwholesome talk come out of our mouth, but only what is helpful for building up. My wife and I, uh, we often get, in, get, into, get into spats. Uh, I, I've said this before. Literally, we've only yelled at each other one time in our marriage life. Yelled and screamed one time. And uh, we still to this day hate that that's a reality. I wish that I could say never, but we have one time. But, but I'll just tell you that, that it, it didn't accomplish anything of value. I mean, we didn't walk away going, man, it really was really beneficial that we screamed at one another. That's the moment of breakthrough for, uh, for us is when we started yelling. That was it. Never happened. But one of the things that we're committed to do, and I'm so thankful Jennifer does this for, to me, and I try to pattern this for her as well. In the midst of con- conflict, when things are not working well, a couple of things that I say to her is, Hey, I love you. I know this is painful. I know this is difficult, but I love you. And we're going to work through this and we're going to make it through this. I say things like this as well. It's hard, by the way. It's hard to do this. But I say say things like, hey, I really appreciate you're a great mom or you're working hard and you're, you're involved and you're plugged in. It's not like you're lazy or anything like that. I mean, anything to speak life into my wife in those situations. And she does a good job of that. It's amazing how that turns the whole context of the conversation around. (laughs) Speak life into your spouse and watch them go. Wasn't ready for that. Last time that was a cuss word. One of the things I think is so important, couples make this mistake often, but for some reason in the midst of conflict, they feel the need to begin to discuss the idea of divorce. Well, maybe we're just not made for one another. Maybe this isn't going to work out. Maybe, maybe we're just two different people. Maybe we just don't see life the same way. Or when you're offended, you're like, listen, here's the deal. I, I may forgive you this time, but if you ever, ever do that again, I want you to know that I'm done. My wife and I have made the decision. I, I, I think it's the right decision because I want to speak life into her. But I've told her and she's told me this. Hear me. We've, I've said this to her. I'm never leaving you. 
you can have an affair on me and I'm not leaving you. And you would say, no, that's dumb. She needs to know. She steps out of bound, you're gone. She needs to have that fear, that certainty that if she does that to you, you're gone. I'm like, no, I don't want that. I want to make sure she knows that there's no way I'm leaving. Only what is helpful for building up. He goes on to say in, the, in, in verse number 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What, what Paul understands here is that, is that uh, in the conversations that we have, God longs for us to speak life into relationships. But the Holy Spirit of God is grieved when we, when we spew things out of our mouth that are destructive to our spouse. The Holy Spirit of God is grieved. I think a larger context here is, is also very important to, make, uh, to, to hear. I think what, what Paul understands is from time to time, as I explained just a moment ago, the Holy Spirit of God in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of dysfunction, the Holy Spirit comes along and says, hey, will you do this? Will you say this? Will you go there? Will you have that conversation? And, and, and God is moving us into restoration. But oftentimes we say no because we don't want to listen. And God's spirit is grieved when we're unresponsive to what he wants to do. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, God has been asking through his spirit, some of you in the room to do some stuff and you've been totally resistant to it. And God's calling you to do it and you don't want to. But it very well may be the key to healing your relationship. He goes on to say in verse number 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. Can you believe he has to write that to Christians? <laughs> yeah, he's not writing this to you know, like the local bar. He's writing this to the church, right? Get rid of all, all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Malice is the underlying driver here. It's called evil intent, and it builds the whole case for how we do everything else. When you have evil intent towards your spouse, and some of us in the room very well may at this point in your relationship, you, you, you know, it, things aren't going well, and you, you, know, you hope they get what's coming to them. If malice is the underlying driving for you, this is the way you demonstrate yourself. Bitterness and rage and slander and brawling. <laughs> I've heard many, many couples say you know what when we fight I throw stuff in the house and they break stuff (laughs) expensive stuff sometimes this is the way they're conducting themselves Paul says get rid of all that it leads to death it's evil intent it has no place in the body of Christ and then finally he says this be kind verse 32 you see the shift Don't be angry. Don't be filthy with your mouth. Don't speak vileness. And then he goes, be kind, compassionate. Forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then in conclusion, the first two verses of chapter 5, and I'm done. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. (laughs) If it wasn't hard enough, Paul concludes this passage of Scripture by saying, be imitators of God, and here's how. When your spouse offends them, be kind to them. (laughs) You're like, that's a good joke. Your wife hurts you. Your husband hurts you. I'm not making excuses for sin at all, period. No excuse for sin. But when they wound you and they hurt you, I know what goes on in your mind because it does in mine as well. The last thing you want to do is run to them with compassion and kindness and forgiveness. 
And some of you in the room would say, you know, Matt, you know, Matt here's the deal. This message works for like families that are functional and that, you know, that they have minor problems like your little small spats with Jennifer that don't amount to anything, right? That's great that you had the little tiff with Jennifer, right? But you don't know about my dysfunction. You don't know about my brokenness. You don't know about my wounds. You don't know how he treated me, she treated me. You don't, you don't get it. Here's what I would say. The reason why Paul, I think, says these words after he gives this practical advice is because of this. You ready? Read this. The greatest offense ever committed was man sinning against a sinless God. And if a sinless God can act with sacrificial love towards us while we were still sinners, that's Romans chapter 5, verse 8, if you want to look it up, then we can act with sacrificial love towards, the, towards others who sin against us. Isn't that true? The perfect one who had the right to abandon us ran to us and rescued us. And that is the heart of the Christ follower. Running to rescue, not running away. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solacechurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible, as you listen to this message today, that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at solacechurch.com and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast.